I joined the second division on the Belgium-French border and uh, at night, about 12 o'clock, and they suited me up with uh, camouflage clothes, snow, of course snow was on the ground, gave me some combat boots and gave me a, a rifle and a couple of bandoliers of ammunition, a half-pound block of TNT with a five-second fuse to blow a hole, to blow a foxhole, and it, they actually worked, but uh, I joined the 2nd Division B Company, a rifle platoon, and for the f next three weeks I was a first scout. The Battle of the Bulge marked the last German offense on the Western Front. The catastrophic losses on the German side prevented Germany from resisting the advance of Allied forces following the Normandy invasion. Less than four months after the end of the Battle of the Bulge, Germany surrendered to Allied forces. The Battle of the Bulge so-called because the Germans created a bulge around the area of the Ardennes Forest, and I hope I'm saying that name right, pushing through the American defensive line. It was the largest fault battle on the Western Front. It's incredible. Hi, and welcome to mm -hmm. today's Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler, and we have the very wonderful privilege today to have Diane Height in the studio. And she has a guest. We're going to talk to our guest in just a moment, who actually was there at the Battle of the Bulge. He's got a whole lot more to share, too, today. But Diane, it is so good to see you. I can't think the last time you were here telling us more amazing stories about our American heroes, which you get the privilege of meeting and have now for how many years? 17. Has it been 17 years yes. ago? That's when we first met, because this yes. was a brand new idea. You were on this show 17 years ago. Your husband and you transferred here to Memphis because he was a pilot with FedEx. Yes. And he retired a couple years ago. Yes. I'll tell you what, it's so good to have you back and just well, to, to hear you. what's going on. Thank you. It's been wild. <laughs> I think the last time I was here, we had an Iwo Jima Marine with us. We did. Holland Richardson. Exactly right. I think what's unique about you is that you've got a, a big heart for Jesus first. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got an ear that likes to hear these stories and help these heroes get some of the respect. Some people are trying to rewrite American history, and that's so sad. And I'm so glad you're trying to preserve it. <laughs> I am. Well, the reason Forever Young Veterans came to be, because my dad became an alcoholic after the war, World War II, that is. And I just watched him suffer. And our family suffered. Anyone that's lived with an alcoholic knows how terrible that it is. Yes. But he was so patriotic, and he loved America so much. <laughs> you know, wherever there's great sacrifice, there's love. And he loved his country. And so I was never able to help my dad. I always wanted to help World War II veterans, but my husband was in the Air Force, so we were moving every three years. And yeah. when we came to uh, Collierville, our when our youngest son finally went to his senior year of high school, I thought, I'm going to start this organization, just grant a few little wishes or small wishes for our World War II veterans and bring some joy into their lives, like get a medal they didn't receive or reunite them with a comrade. So, Or even get one to throw out the pitch at the St. Louis Cardinals <laughs> we, we games, we, which he was original pitcher for the Cardinals back in 1939, Don Ballard. Don Ballard. Yes. Yes, we did that. So I thought, I can bring some joy into their lives, but here's what what I found that really shocked me. So many of these men had suffered and maybe still were suffering just like my dad. And I was surprised by that because, you know, I think for most of us, we think we're the only ones. And I guess in my mind, I thought that my dad was the only one that came back from the war 
that really did have PTSD. He was an alcoholic. So I was, I was quite surprised to see that these World War II veterans were still suffering, and I called it silently suffering. They, they still were suffering from the war after all these years. Wow. Well, we're here to tell a story today. I'm looking forward to introducing to you Mr. James H. Young. He's soon to be 97 years old. His birthday is coming up in May, I believe. Fourth. May 4th. That's a good birthday. Yes, it is. Mr. James, you were born back in 1926. You were born. When you were growing up, where did you grow up? And tell me about family life, your mom and dad, and some of the memories of growing up. I was born on a shanty boat beached at the foot of Beagle Street. My dad was a commercial fisherman. My earliest recollection, we lived in a tent across the river on the Arkansas side. My dad had picked up a World War I Army surplus tent, and that's my earliest recollection, is living on the river. I spent the first... <laughs> 18 years of my life practically working and fishing on the Mississippi River and my dad also was a he trapped for fur bearing animals so that's how we made most of our living was doing that until so I went served. This was as you mentioned down around Bill Street which now is an entertainment district. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't much entertainment back then, right? No, not then. There was a lot of of uh, secondhand stores and pawn shops and right. things like that. Right. So what kind of fish would you pull out of the Mississippi River? Well, the biggest one I ever pulled out of it weighed 87 pounds and was blue cat. Oh, my catfish. goodness. It was primarily catfish. Yeah. Bit, but then there was, a, uh, there, there used to be a, a, a fish in the river, it's, it's no longer there, called a spoonbill catfish. They were, sometimes they'd be 25, 30, 40 pounds, something like that. My goodness. But we called a buffalo rough fish uh, mostly, but mostly we were fishing for catfish. So would you take these fish to local fish markets, sell oh, yes, them? Yes, there or? was a fish market on Beale Street, Beale in front. Lipsy's, I believe, was the name of the fish market. There. It was Lipsy's. Matter of fact, somebody just posted in the History of Memphis a picture recently and commented on Lipsy's. So you actually walked in that fish well, market. I actually walked in there and sold fish. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There, yes. How about that? So but, tell me what was going on in your family life and even in the city of Memphis just prior to the war breaking out. What was life like? Well, I lived in, and uh, primarily I lived in South Memphis, and we didn't on the river. I went to school, and uh, can't recall the name of that school. Uh, but anyway, it was just kid stuff, playing mostly interested in uh, cowboys and Indians and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> I lived an outdoor life. Uh, it was I was 13 years old before I ever lived in a house that had electricity. So the entertainment, we had to make our own entertainment. There was quite a bit of music. There was some gifted people in my family, guitar players, piano players, and we were primarily around the church, right? you know, a local church. So and, the, the uh, church was an important part of your life oh, growing it, up. it definitely was, yes. Yes, it was. When did you come but, to understand what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? When did you understand the, the importance of that? That didn't come until later. Of course, I heard a lot of messages and a lot of preaching, and I saw healing and things of that nature growing up. But uh, I never really had a personal experience with the Lord until I was in a foxhole in Germany during the Battle of the Bulge. Oh, my. Now, my first real experience, and I wrote a little article there that in first time I really had a spiritual experience of the Lord. And it was after the war before I started getting into church. As a matter of fact, I was discharged. Of course, came back to Memphis and I met this girl. And uh, two months later, we was married. So she was pretty. She was was a pretty girl. Hmm? She was a pretty girl. 
Very. Yeah. <laughs> the most beautiful girl I ever saw, inside as well as out. What was her name? Louise Davis. She was born in Dyersburg, but she lived in Memphis here. She, I think she was raised in Dyersburg. As a matter of fact, I know she finished high school in Dyersburg. Right. But anyway, she is actually the one that led me to the church. She was talking about the nightmares and all of those things, you know. Uh, no one knows what I went through except my wife at night, and it lasted for 17 years. Oh, my. My dad passed away, and there was a gentleman preacher preached a funeral. I don't even remember much about the uh, message or anything, but my wife, enjoyed, she liked the preacher and, and the message, and my sister was a member of that church, so Louise decided we are going to start going to church. We had children by that time, and so we started, and that's when I first met the Lord. And this was after the— uh, This went was to... after the war had ended, right. 17 years after okay. the war had ended. Okay. But in that foxhole, when I first had the experience with the Lord, I can remember that I subconsciously or whatever, I made a a lot of promises. But when the war ended and I came through it, uh, then I just forgot all all that. But praise the Lord, he never did forget. The Lord never did forget me. (laughs) He kept after me until I finally just couldn't go any longer. One day, though, after we'd started church, uh, we'd been going a month or so, and one Sunday morning, sleeping a little bit, bit late, I was still having nightmares and all that. I'd read a book until it, I'd go to sleep, and, and the book could fall on my face, trying to go to sleep, because every time I thought I was closing my eyes, I was going to die, and uh, because death was so close to me from, from the war. This one Sunday morning, I wasn't going to go. She said, if you'll go with me this morning, well, I won't bother you about it more. She said, why don't you want to go? I said, well, it's it's not doing me any good. And actually, it wasn't. I don't, don't know why that I wasn't ready or whatever. And when the service was over that particular Sunday morning, people were leaving the church, leaving and shaking hands. And when I went to shake hands with the pastor, I heard this voice say, if you could find time, I'd like for you to come by my house. And uh, he said, well, what do you want? I said, well, I'd like to talk to you. And he said, uh, what about? I said, well, I guess I want, I, need, I want to get saved. And he said, oh, I didn't even know what being saved was, really. And frankly, <laughs> I was listening to a voice from somebody else, I thought. Yes. It didn't even sound like me. So he said, well, why don't we just take care of it right now? And I said, well, all right. He said, well, let's pray. And my answer to him was, I don't know how to pray. What I actually meant is I didn't know what to say. Yes. And he said, well, do you repeat a prayer? I prayed. And so we bowed our heads, closed our eyes, and he said, Lord, I am a sinner. Come into my heart and save my soul. And I didn't say anything. And he repeated it. I still didn't say anything. And I raised my head and opened my eyes, and he was looking at me right now, right like this. And he said, Lord, I'm a sinner. He started praying again. Lord, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart. I remember saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart. And my friend, something beyond human understanding happened to this person. There was no clap of thunder, no lightning bolt, nothing like that, but there was a feeling of peace and tranquility. I believe it started at the end of the hairs on my head, <laughs> and it just started coming down over me. Amen. Like I cannot describe the feeling. James, and oh, that is so beautiful. The, the man, I, I actually realized that he was still praying, and so I was repeating the prayer. But I want you to know 
now since I've been studying the Word of God and all, I know that that was the moment that I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. I know that's when Jesus Christ came into my heart and changed my life. On the way home, I told my wife, well, she was standing right by the side of me when it happened. I said, Louise, something happened to me when Brother, his name was Roy Gingrich, he was a professor at Mid-South Bible College. I had, I, he was one of my professors when I was going to school there. I remember, right? I remember Brother Roy. You yes. remember him? I had some classes, Synoptic Gospels and well, some, amen. some other classes I had Brother, with him. he's the one. That, that, <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I said, something happened to me. She said, what? I said, I don't know, but I'm either going to have to get in this thing or out of it. And she said, well, Jim, try not to get out of it. Stay in it. I went home. We went to bed, and this was on a Sunday night. The next morning, of course, I had to go to work. And Louise was shaking me. She said, Jim, you're going to have to get up. You're going to be late for work. I said, what? She said, you're going to be late for work. When I laid down on that bed, I remember laying down on the bed and my head on the pillow, but I did not remember nothing <laughs> else till she was shaking me. Wow. I never had a nightmare. I've never had a mat nightmare before God. I have never had a nightmare about that war to this very day, to this very instant. Oh. God delivered me from that. Well, James, what a wonderful testimony of God's goodness and how he opened up your heart with his love and his grace. And what Christ did is so wonderful, how he took those sins to the cross, and we can all receive that. Well, James, I understand that you actually preferred going into the Army over the Navy. Now, what I find is interesting, because you grew up on the Mississippi River. You were around water a lot. Why didn't you want to go in the Navy instead of the Army? What was the difference between the two? Well, I had a cousin that, I mean, an uncle, well, and a cousin, too, one in the uh, Marines and one in the, was a paratrooper in the Army. And I was intending to become a paratrooper. That was the reason that I was going to join, follow my uncle, and become a paratrooper. I see. I went directly to uh, to Port of Embarkation with a three-day delay en route when I finished basic training. Left and, of course, landed in England and crossed to the Channel, landed at La Havre. Got on a train and went somewhere up in France, across France. They had already occupied France when I got there. I was a replacement. I joined the 2nd Division on the Belgium-French border and uh, at night, about 12 o'clock, and they suited me up with uh, camouflage clothes and snow. Of course, snow was on the ground. Gave me some combat boots and gave me a, a rifle and a couple of bandoliers of ammunition and half-pound block of TNT with a five-second fuse to blow a hole, to blow a foxhole, and it they actually work. But uh, I joined the 2nd Division B Company, a rifle platoon, and for the next three weeks, I was a first scout. And the uh, machine gun section had a mortar shell hit right among them, killed everybody but two, and so I was transferred into the machine gun section, and uh, that's where I said I was a gunner for throughout the war, 30 caliber air cool. You were in the hedgerow, too, weren't you, in France? Yes, we were still in some hedgerows. They gave me a clicker to identify myself across the hedgerow. Were you afraid at that point? I mean, I can't imagine being in a battle like that. We moved out for the first time at daylight. I was assigned to a squad, and they made me a first scout. The first scout is the first one to contact the enemy. And we had walked out to a, it looked like part of a barn, one wall out of it, and there was a dead horse laying there, and it was swelled very, very big. And we had been talking, and there was a pair of binoculars hanging on a, 
a post there, and I started to pick him up, and he said, don't touch that, it might be a booby trap. And we began to hear incoming mortar shells. And he said, hit the ground, and I hit the ground. Fortunately, I hit the ground right by the side of that dead horse because mortar shell hit next to the dead horse, but the sergeant was still standing up, and I heard him say, pill roller. I looked, and he was holding his left hand, and his left hand wrist had been severed, and with just white leaders and his hand hanging down there, and when I was looking, blood begins to squirt out from the arteries, and why he didn't hit the ground when he told me to hit the ground, I don't know why he didn't, but... Yes. Anyway, there was happened to be aid men pretty close by because I got up and I was going to try to find the aid men, uh, and that was my first, you know, experience with combat. That was about daylight. It hadn't been day two hours when that happened. The that story of the Battle of the Bulge is above all the story of American soldiers. I mean, this is we talk about Custard's last stand. This was really Hitler's mm-hmm. last stand. That you guys, because of your bravery and what you did and your persistence, were able to hold them back. Well, I got there about the time that that we started retaking what the what the uh, Germans had broke through and overrun, and that's when when I came in retaking you know places that they were occupying. So Patton's Third Army provided relief to the north. The Second U.S. Armored Division stopped enemy tanks on Christmas, and through January, American troops, often wading through deep snowdrifts, attacked the sides of the shrinking bulge until they had restored the front and set the stage for the final drive to victory. Well, well, I can remember how the overcast the star, the skies were and everything and the snow and all. And I finally, I remember when the sun finally broke through and the Air Force could move. That's when we really got relief and help. But the final thing I think that really stopped not only our res- resistance is as the Germans begin to run out of ta- out of oil, out of gasoline. Yeah. With the tanks, those Tiger tanks, we had nothing that would stand up against that. Well, never again would Hitler be able to launch an offensive in the West on such a scale. Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill stated, This is undoubtedly the greatest American battle of the war and will, I believe, be regarded as an ever-famous American victory. And you were part of that. Yes, I was. But the only thing I could remember what was in hearing distance or what I, what I could see, I didn't know what was going on anyplace else. And the uh, foot soldier, we didn't really know what was going on other than what we were actually involved in. There was a time, too, you wore the boots for several weeks without taking your boots off, right? I had eight pair of socks. I had two on my feet, two or three pair around my waist, and a pair, one under each arm to dry them. I'd rotate uh, with... Uh, you know, dry socks coming out from my underarm, put them under on, on my feet, and the one take them out from out of my, put it around my waist, right. and what have you, to dry them. Tell me about this lady next to you, Diane Height. How did you get to know her, and what has she meant I to was you? At a, I, I was at a church. My one of my granddaughters was a school teacher, and I was at a, skirt, a church one day, and they were having some kind of little drinks and refreshments, and there was a lady standing there talking, a very attractive young lady. She was standing there, and uh, somebody said, if you're a World War II veteran, she's offering to take you on a trip, and her, they pay everything. And I Wherever said, you want to go, right? <laughs> and I said, what? And she, he said, yeah. So I walked up there, and I listened to her talking to some guy. I don't remember it was. Uh, there was a brother-in-law with me that was also so a World War II veteran. So I stood there for a few minutes and watched this young lady, and I, I was so skeptical. You know, my mom was from Missouri, and 
And I always thought anything that was, you know, offered, they always had to be a gimmick or something. So I was very skeptical of her. I stood there and listened to it. And I was very impressed by what she's saying and all. So I told my brother-in-law they were planning a trip to Washington, D.C. I'd never been to D.C. And I told Jess, I said, Jess, let's, let's talk to her. So I walked over and started talking to her. And I was impressed by her that she, she was sincere. And so I went to a meeting. And then I become when she was talking about why she was doing this, her motive. Yeah. And that's what I was concerned about. That's what it was. Yes. That's what and so it. when I found out, you know, well then, and she was so sincere, it really impressed me. So I signed up for the trip to Washington, D.C. And it was just really, she introduced me to the world. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Diane, that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> it is. To hear that laughter? And that joy from James, having an opportunity to go on one of these trips, which chaired these travels before, that he was talking about Washington, but you've taken men back to Pearl Harbor. You've taken them to Normandy and Belgium, Belgium. Luxembourg, Germany, (laughs) Italy, England. We've been on uh, 54 trips. Has it been 54 in this past 17 years? Yes. Oh, my goodness. It's a miracle. We've been to Normandy nine times (laughs) and to Belgium nine times, and we're going to uh, Normandy for the 80th anniversary next year. Oh, my Can I just share quickly one story, one story that happened to one of our Vietnam veterans. And these are the kinds of things that take place that we're just sitting there and just going, God, we know how much you love these men and women who have fought for our country. But we were going to the wall in D.C. He had nine friends on the wall. He's a Marine. He was at Quezon. So when we got there, he was nervous. He was a little upset. And he thought, I just want to calm myself. So he and a Marine friend decided they were going to walk the length of the wall just to calm themselves before they started doing the rubbing of the names. Well, as they were walking down, one of our volunteers stopped them just randomly and said, let me take your picture. So they turned and she took their photo and off they went. Well, after the trip, she sent me the photo and she sent the photo to him. And he called me and he said, I want to tell you what happened. He said, I enlarged the photo and above his left shoulder was his very best friend who was killed at Quezon. Now, this was not just an acquaintance. I had known this Marine probably for four or five years. Every year he would call me or text me and say, today is Gary's birthday or today is the day Gary died every single year. And here, right above his shoulder is Gary's name. Oh, my. And there are over 58,000 names on the wall. That How could that even be possible? <laughs> but see, God knew he needed this. And he stopped at the exact place where his name would be over his left shoulder. And we see things happen like that all the time. I can't plan that. No. Only God no. can do yes. that. I mean, we, have, so we see things happen like this on every trip. And... You just can't deny the power of God, how much he appreciates those who have Mm -hmm. sacrificed. See, Jesus understands sacrifice. And so he has a special love for our veterans. I'm just convinced of it. So we just see this over and over and over. And for every young veterans, our, our motto is honor, healing and hope. We found that as we honor these veterans, it helps bring healing to their lives. And it gives them hope for the future. As you just saw with Jim talking about how 
now it, he realized God's not finished with me yet. That's right. So honor, healing, and hope is just so important. Yes. And um, I could tell you a million stories, honestly. <laughs> I have so many more of those. It's, it's unbelievable. It is so beautiful. One final thing. The camaraderie, the being with these guys, the fellowship, guys that went through the same things you went through, suffered the same things you suffered. And I'm telling you, brother, it's words cannot describe what these trips are doing for guys like me. And I praise the Lord for it, and I pray for them every night when I lay down on my pillow to go to bed because of what they're doing. I know church is the essence, and the Bible says we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, even as we see the day approach. But this organization is just doing something that church does not do for guys like me. God bless you, and James. And I appreciate what I want to tell you how much I appreciate. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your sacrifice and love for our country and all you did for the protection and freedom that we share as Americans. Thank you so much, my dear well, thank you. friend and brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Diane, it's always, every thank time you, you come, <laughs> you bring gold to, with you every time you come. <laughs> well, thank you for having us. It's, it's so important. We can just never forget the sacrifice for our great country. I know America is having some issues right now, but it's still the greatest country in the world. And our vets, they deserve our love and they need us. Yes. The root meaning of the word angel is messenger. This is an angel. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Thank you. I love you. God bless you both. Well, we're going to have to say goodbye. But before we say one more thing, the website, if folks want to know more information, if they want to contribute to the cause of getting this organized trip back to Normandy, is it? Yes. It's foreveryoungvets.org. Okay. And the phone number is 901-299-7516. And for those of you who don't know, we do have a monthly meeting in the Faith Building at Germantown Baptist Church on the third Thursday of every month. Coffee and donuts from 10 to 10.30. Our meeting's only one hour, 10.30 to 11.30. It's just to show our veterans how grateful we are. We honor them. It's We love America. It's very patriotic. And I think that's one of the reasons it's grown so much. I mean, they're just beating the door down is because I think it's something that's missing in our country right now. Yes. And we have a lot of veterans. We probably have around 200 that are coming right now. That's beautiful. I love that. We also have some great entertainment and we refer to her as the little general. <laughs> <laughs> the little general. Love it. Well, guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much, Diane, for the sharing of this wonderful story. For every young, it's a great ministry, friends. Learn more about it, too. Go to the website. Help contribute to the calls of these men who have been so faithful to serve for our freedom. And we're going to have to say goodbye. <laughs> I hate to. we got more so we can share, but we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you for joining us. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. to Mid-South Viewpoint. The show is archived for on-demand listening on our website at bobradionetwork.com or via your favorite podcast platform like Spotify and iTunes. Some of our shows have videos as well and can be viewed on YouTube at Byron Tyler Radio. Stay tuned to Vibe Radio Network to fill your day with God's Word.